Chester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we have for you an interview with Chibundu Anuzo, the author of Welcome to Lagos. This was such an amazing interview. It really was. It was it was really fantastic. I just felt like I had taken so many notes and needed to Google so many things that I was just like, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> she's just as lively in person as you would expect by reading her work. Like, oh man, she's just so much fun to talk to. That's the only thing I have to say about it. <laughs> yeah, she is. And I felt like, you know, she mentioned in the inter- interview that Lagos gives you wings, uh, like Red Bull gives you wings. Yes. <laughs> I felt like that was definitely the like the impression that I was getting. I felt like uh, Chibundu was just, just bringing so much energy to the topics that we were discussing and uh, just, I don't know, all the things. So we could go on and on talking about it, but let's go ahead and go to our interview with Chibundu about her book, Welcome to Lagos. So we have with us today Chibundu Anuzo who has most recently published Welcome to Lagos, which is our second novel, and that's out from Catapult here in the U.S. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. We both really enjoyed your book, so we're excited to talk to you about it today and kind of hopefully introduce it to some new readers who haven't read it yet. Thank you. I first heard about your book when it was published over in the UK, and all of my UK uh, bookish world friends were so excited about it, and I was so jealous because it wasn't out in the US, but now it's out in the US, So how and you're now you're over here doing your book tour, so how has your trip been? Yeah, it's been good. So we started off in New York. Um, I'm using the royal we, of course. I do mean I, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, a book tour is such a mass effort, so there Lots of people behind the scenes booking hotels and booking flights. and So it actually does feel like a we, even though I'm the only face you see. <laughs> so shout out to Catapult and, like, you know, the amazing team there. But, um, so yeah, I started off in New York, um, and that was good. I had two days there, and I did a couple of interviews. And I also had a launch event where I sang. And I also got the audience to sing, actually. And oh, I would wow. say that... American audiences are generally, or at least, I can't say generally, I've only had one so far, but New York <laughs> audiences anyway, they were, they were surprisingly up for it. I usually find that when I do it in England, the crowd takes a little bit more warming up, but um, <laughs> they were open to it. That's so cool. I, I do feel Americans are a bit louder, maybe, <laughs> than people in the UK. <laughs> so, Yeah. Uh, that's really fun, though. It's great that you got to do that. So what are you what you said you started in New York. Where are some other places that you're headed on your tour? OK, so right now I'm in Atlanta. So Atlanta is my next stop. Then I go to Dallas and then Houston and then I think Minneapolis. And then I've kind of lost the trail. But I'm going to, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to a couple of the Chicago um, and then I'm back in New York as well. I feel I've missed one. The information is all online. <laughs> Sounds like you're covering a lot of ground, so. I know. I always forget, like, I'm used to America being just so, such a big, you know, country. And then I have people like, oh, I went the entire length of Britain and it was only like, what, I did it in like half a day. And I'm like, how do you do that? How do you cover your country in half a day? So as we mentioned, um, you're here promoting your book, Welcome to Lagos. 
and we could describe your book for you, but we'd really love if you could kind of describe it for our listeners who haven't read Welcome to Lagos yet and kind of just tell them what it's all about. Okay, so the novel starts off in the Niger Delta, which is the oil-producing region of Nigeria. And it starts off with two soldiers who have been posted there to sort of quell an insurrection, basically. People in the area are fighting um, for greater access to the wealth that comes from the oil. So anyways, these two soldiers are posted there, and they're ordered to do something that they don't want to do. And so they desert the army. They disobey the order, and they desert the army, because um, disobeying an order is a capital offense in the Nigerian army. I think in most armies, actually, it's very serious, and you get prosecuted (laughs) for it. Um, And so they run away, and they decide to run away to a big city. And the city that, through a series of events, they choose is Lagos. And on the way to Lagos, they pick up other characters who are also running away from different things. And they form this sort of band. And when they get to Lagos, they have adventures. That's it. That's my summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really brings you in from, like, the first chapter. I know that... I really enjoyed reading that first chapter and had no idea where it was going. I had no idea where it was going either, actually. (laughs) I must say. Um, But yeah, I'm not a massive plotter, so I didn't have an idea. Well, it's interesting that you say that because um, your your first novel, The the Spider King's Daughter, is written from one or two perspectives. Um, But Welcome to Lagos is from multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. So how is that going from just, you know, a couple main characters to a whole ensemble of characters that you were writing from? Yeah, I was just feeling more ambitious. So I was like, yep, I'm a published writer now. You know, it's time for me to expand. <laughs> so I very deliberately wanted to write a novel with a large cast of characters because I just read um, Sea of Poppies by Amitav Ghosh. And in the novel, a large cast of characters, they come together and they have adventures. And I just thought the novel was so brilliant. So I knew I wanted to write a novel with a large cast of characters, but I didn't have a story. So anyway, I had this dream. I've said this so many times, and each time I still cringe. But it's true, I had a dream. (laughs) I had a dream about two soldiers who ended up being the soldiers at the beginning. And then I started adding characters to the two soldiers and adding characters. And it was actually quite difficult to to just make the story fit together. Like, it was almost like this one million puzzle piece. And actually, I ended up having too many characters and then having to get rid of some. And then just, yeah, it, it took longer than I thought it would. Because, yes, I had so many characters and I had so many different perspectives. And maybe I wouldn't have. I think that what was fun was I didn't know how difficult it would be to write with so many characters. Or perhaps I might just have had three main characters. You know, I might have done baby steps. So when you were looking at all the different characters that you had written, how did you decide what ones you wanted to keep and what ones you decided to cut? I say this, it was all very Darwinian. So it was survival of the fittest. <laughs> so... I lined up my characters against the wall and I said, justify your place in the book. And if you couldn't justify your place in the book, 
you got the guillotine, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, it was very, very intense. Very intense. Sounds like some sort of like Hunger Games thing, only for books characters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Make odds be in your favor. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. So then if you didn't plot as you wrote, or like, I guess if you didn't plot it out beforehand, like how did you determine what the structure would be as you went? Exactly. That's why it was so difficult to write. (laughs) (laughs) So when I write, I have big events in my head. Like I have all these milestones. So, okay, so I have the beginning where they leave the army. And then I know I want them to get to Lagos. Um, I mean, I eventually picked Lagos. I know I want them to get to Lagos. Um, But I don't know how they're going to get there. And then I have another, like, massive plot um, plot thing happening so like i know for example i want a politician to burst into the storyline at this point but again i don't know how i'm going to get all my characters to the moment where the politician comes in so i think i have big things that are going to happen in the novel i have them in my head but then i just have to work out how to move everybody from point a to point b Mm. and then that's the bit that's difficult for me to just figure out so you already mentioned the the soldiers that are kind of like you know the the beginning of the novel and how um you've mentioned in other places how it's based on a a true event that happened i think around 1999 um and that was kind of like part of that inspiration so i guess my question is so if that partially inspired you to write that section did all of that come from just the image of of those soldiers leaving the army and moving forward or did you also look up that event and incorporate like the politician from those events or was it just all from your brain so yeah that's a really good question actually because so I thought of it two soldiers, and as I said, when, when I say it's a dream, like, dream logic just doesn't make sense. So these two soldiers, I know they're, in Niger- they're Nigerian, but in their dream, they're, like, in some sort of medieval castle. So obviously, that's not going to work unless I'm writing a very different kind of book, um, one including time travel. So when I woke up, <laughs> when I woke up and started writing down um, the dream, I then thought, what setting could they be in? Where could they be posted to? What are some of the recent conflicts that you've had Nigerian soldiers posted within Nigeria? And then then I then thought of the Niger Delta and I suppose kind of transplanted the dream there. And then there was a very, as you said, there was a real incident that happened in a town called Odi. Again, so I was then thinking of what kind of order could they have been given in the context of real Nigerian history, where they would say, you know what, we're not doing this. This is wrong. And so there was a village called Odi. And soldiers were, again, allegedly a soldier was killed. None, I, I don't think none of this has ever gone to court, but a soldier was killed allegedly by uh, militants. That's what the insurrectionists in the Niger Delta are called in Nigeria. Militants, you know, some say freedom fighters, some say militants. It all depends on your perspective. Mm. They were killed allegedly by militants. And the militants hid in a town called Odi. The town was given maybe a day or two days to produce the militants, the whole town. Like, you know, again, if you were just somebody minding your business and nobody had come to hide in your town or in your house, you also were given a couple of days to produce these militants. And when they didn't, the army went in, the Nigerian army went in and 
leveled this village. Like, they mm. destroyed it. They comp- or town, actually. I don't think... It wasn't even a village. Um, I, in the book, I used a village, but it was a town. You know, I know I read somewhere that they had a bank. They had, you know, they had some infrastructure. The army went in and destroyed the place. And so, yeah, I suppose I transplanted my two soldiers refusing an order to this real thing that happened where then, you know, they refuse and then they have to run away. One of the things that, in addition to like the historical context of the novel, another thing that really stood out to me was this of faith. And, you know, faith plays a big role in your novel. And, you know, I really can't remember the last time that I wrote or that I read a novel that was included people of faith or was about faith. How did you approach that when including the topic of faith and people of faith in the story? I think that's so interesting, actually, you say that. And it's true. Not a lot lot of of novels incorporate faith, but Mm -hmm. so many people have faith. Like, you know, billions of people all over the world, you know, they have some sort of belief in, you know, in in the divine. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian um, and I wanted to write about a character engaging with a scriptural text, which in the case, which in my case, the one I'm closest to that I know the best is the Bible. And I wanted to write about Tike engaging outside the structures of quote-unquote formal religion. So in the book, for example, they never go to church, you know, they never go to a physical church. But of course, like, I suppose it's stretching the, the definition of church because church is not buildings, church is people. Um, you know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name. This is Jesus speaking. I'm there. Mm -hmm. So this idea of them coming together and forming some sort of spiritual community where the leader of the group himself is not necessarily a Christian. Um, I I would describe him as a seeker, actually. I would describe Shikia as a seeker. Um, And so, yeah, they come and they explore the text and they explore the Bible and they read the scriptures and they just all share their perspective on what they've read. And it helps to strengthen the bond between the group, even though they are not all coming to the same conclusions on the text. Um, some are believers, some don't care. I, was, I would put Yemi in the category of don't care, um, and so on and so forth. But I think, thinking about it, why I incorporated these kind of sections into the book where they're exploring the Bible, this is me, like, you know, psychoanalyzing myself. But I think some of the reason why is because when I was young, we used to have morning Bible studies every morning before we went to school. And mm. it would be something similar. So my dad would read from the Bible and then we would discuss, which is not that usual sometimes. We were allowed to, or maybe it is, um, but we were allowed to um, to question and to challenge and to, to, to give our thoughts on the scripture, you know. Maybe question is too strong because I think we were all, we were all operating with the framework that, you know, this is a text that we believe in and we adhere to. But we were allowed to to give our own perspectives anyway um, and to disagree with interpretations. Um, and, yeah, so I think that kind of fed into also. And I remember these times very fondly. I didn't always like them because, you know, sometimes they were too early in the morning. And I was right. like, oh, my gosh. Right. Oh, my gosh. I do not want to be reading Acts of the Apostles at this time of the morning. Um, but, but, but I, but I, even till now, most mornings, well, I try to anyway, I read my Bible in the morning and, and I like engaging with the text just on my own. I have notebooks mm-hmm. 
full of my scriptural musings and things. So, yeah. And when I, I started reading a book and I said one of the characters, like, you know, quoting scripture and, and reading different things, I was like, oh, I was I was so thrilled because often just there aren't a lot of literary books about faith written by people oh. of faith. So like um, oh. Marilyn Robinson obviously would be the yeah. number one. Yes. Yes. I love oh, She's Robinson. so good. And then whenever I start talking <laughs> about it, people are like, C.S. Lewis, this and that. And I'm like, well, have you heard of Marilyn Robinson? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> uh, so I was so excited to see that, um, that you were including that. Um, were you very aware of the tradition that you were entering or was it something like new ground for you? Um, I suppose it was a bit of both. So I know that um, there are other writers who have written in other contexts about faith. I mean, I guess you mentioned, but I was looking for to see it done in a literary way is rare. So, for example, I would say C.H. Lewis does it in a literary way, but he's apologetic. It's very clear what he's doing. Whereas mm-hmm. I wouldn't call Gilead apologetics. I would call, but mm-hmm. I would, it, ruminations on faith, just a little different, a little less pointed than C.S. Lewis. Because what he's, what he's trying to achieve is different from what someone is trying to achieve in a novel. And so I haven't seen it done very often in an African context. So the post-colonial African response to Christianity, um, the dominant response has often actually been quite, um, has often been quite negative for, for you know, for, for very reasonable reasons, such as, right. you know, the missionaries came in and, you know, they um, demonized African culture and African practices and African traditions. And, you know, they didn't kind of treat the indigenous religions with the respect that they deserved, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so I completely get that. Um, but I think I belong to a different tradition. So in the sense that how I see it in my mind is um, shoot the messenger, not the message. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yes, okay, you know, and there was a lot of heavy-handedness in how they preached the gospel. There was a lot of, you know, there was forced youth sometimes, there was coercion, there was manipulation. There were all these things. And so, yeah, okay, we don't actually like many of the messengers now. But the message, and this is why I wanted Chike and the band to just engage with the text, the message is still very powerful. The message is still very persuasive. The message, and I think it's very interesting with with missionary work because obviously I studied history. In our first year, I went, I I, I studied a very classical history history course. So we uh, in our first my first year of university, I just studied like European history from like a thousand BC or whatever <laughs> till the, till World War Two. And one of the weeks that we we studied the fall of the Roman Empire and then the rise and then the aftermath anyway and in one of the weeks we studied the conversion of Britain and it was um when Pope Gregory was Pope Gregory the seventh they call him Gregory the Great sometimes he was the Pope and this was at a time when the church didn't have the power I'm kind of of digressing but you know if you permit me (laughs) oh it's fantastic (laughs) so go go ahead (laughs) this was at the time when the church didn't have the Roman Catholic Church didn't have the power, didn't have all the state authority that would, it would later come to have in Europe. So he told the missionaries who were going to Britain, one, don't try and get martyred 
because what a lot of missionaries previously they would do was okay you go into a village and they say that's our sacred tree and the first thing they do is they head straight to the sacred tree they chop it down and then they get killed and they're like okay i died for the faith so i'm a saint Oh my goodness. And he's like, okay, don't let's let's not go down that route. Okay, look, one, we don't actually have that many of you going. So when you get to Britain, um, live among the community, live there, learn their traditions. And if you see traditions that you think, okay, this kind of has, you know, liken, um, use metaphors that connect Christian faith to their existing traditions, and then also try and Christianize called existing tradition. Hence, you know, why we have a Christmas tree, for example. A lot of the celebrations around Christmas, things like, you know, All Hallows Eve, which, okay, now people now call Halloween, etc., etc. But the church did a lot to to Christianize traditions. And what they did was that they so embedded themselves, and I suppose lived the gospel, that in one or two generations, Britain was um, converted. People Mm. were persuaded by the message, not by any of all the other shenanigans. And it's interesting, I was reading some historical commentary, even as a first-year student, like, and especially from the perspective of a historian, which is why with history, a lot of it is subjective. But I remember reading this work where the historian from an agnostic or atheist 21st century view could not offer any explanation for why, without force, without any sort of military power, Britain had... um, converted in this space of time and eventually he concluded like I suppose you just have to conclude that they were genuinely persuaded Mm. (laughs) and like it was so preposterous (laughs) to him but he just couldn't think of any other reason like is there something economic here is there something like he went through all the different reasons like why like why did and it wasn't just kings converted you know the country from top to bottom Mm-hmm. Um, there was this conversion. Um, and again, I mean, it's um, so w- that wasn't done in our, I think the point I'm trying to make is that wasn't done in an African context. Um, because by mm-hmm. this time, you know, church and state have become very close. The church has also become very powerful and very rich. And how um, the missionaries came, you know, they, they came with force backing them. Um, mm-hmm. And they came with, you know, so and they came with a lot of prejudice and they came not trying to embed themselves into local culture and customs. In some cases, not in all, not in all, but in some cases and in the cases that have caused the most kind of rancor and bitterness and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so which is why I say in a post-colonial African context for me is, um, you know, shoot the messenger, man. We didn't, but the message, you know, keep, keep, don't keep the message for me. I've kept the message anyway. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just taking it all in because I just think it's so beautiful. Like I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm like trying to think and talk at the same time and it's not working very well. <laughs> it's not working. It's not working. Because one of the things that Adam and I bemoan the most is that this idea of quote unquote Christian fiction and how miserable that its state is yes. and how there's only yes. like one Marilyn Robinson. Where are the other Christian writers of literary fiction, because it's not the stereotypical, you know, clean romance novels that we've heard. They're they're amazingly talented people. And why aren't they writing these great books? So that's why when I read your book and I saw the dedication to the glory of God, I was like so thrilled because I was like, this is it. Like, 
I, I, this sounds like we finally have found someone else. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want, you know, you talk about how, you know, in quote, Christian fiction, you know, the clean romance. But then I think, like, do people, like, read the Bible? Like, you know, David <laughs> and Bathsheba, like, he was in his palace. Like, yes. and he saw a woman bathing. You know, she was naked. And he was watching her from her from his palace window. And then he calls her into the palace and then he sleeps with her. And then he kills her husband. Like, what? what? This is, like, scandal. How to get away with murder. Like, it's, it's all rolled into one. Like, I, I mean... I guess the Bible doesn't go into graphic detail, but then this is where, you know, writers come in and say, you know, they summarized um, <laughs> and now, now we expand. <laughs> uh, that is true. I, I grew up going to Sunday school and I remember as an adult the first time rereading some of those stories and going, oh, wow, that's what happened? Whoa, <laughs> I had no idea. So I understand. Oh, man. We can gather ourselves here and, like... Let me recover for a second. So your book is set in Lagos, and the city itself is has a beautiful quality where you've written so vividly what it's like and what the character of the city is like. Um, and we notice that the last line in your acknowledgement says, and lastly to Lagos, the city of my birth, my dreams, my frustrations, my imagination. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with the city and like how it became such a prominent feature in your writing? Okay, so I was born in Lagos, um, and I lived there till I was 14. Um, and I then moved to England for boarding school. And at that point, all I wanted to do was escape Lagos. Um, and I wanted to move and go abroad. And I wanted to go where I felt like the world was happening, in quotes. And you find this with a lot of of people like me who've lived in who've lived all over the world, like when I meet people from India or wherever, and when we, we get talking, especially people who are, part, who are part of the middle class in those countries, is there's this thing of self-provincialization. Okay, so this is how I describe it. Because you live in a, in a large city, but yet you feel like the world is going on somewhere else, mostly mm. because of the media that you consume. So, you know, a lot of the, the television and I suppose even the clothes that you wear, or just a lot of the, the images we were fed with were from another country. And so it just happens that you just feel that nothing is happening where you live and it's all happening outside somewhere. So I couldn't wait to leave at 14. It was like, wow, you know, life is really going to start. And then I go to my boarding school in Winchester, which is like the least happening place. <laughs> it's like a small town like an hour away from London and I was um, it was very cold like it just wasn't it wasn't the life that I I don't know what I was picturing because I could just we had the internet I could have googled and seen that you know <laughs> Winchester wasn't going to be the gateway to this vibrant cosmopolitan buzzing life but anyway I got to Winchester and not a lot of people knew about um knew about Nigeria. Some people, I don't think some people even knew it was a country. But okay, let, let me not <laughs> let me not cast as specials. Okay. Maybe they knew it was a country. Um I can't remember. It was quite a long time ago. But I do this is definitely true that some people were very surprised by how good um our English was 
So I went mm. with my sister and they, they'd be like, oh, your English is so good. And I'd be like, wow, your English is really good as well. Well done, you know, congratulations. <laughs> um, you know, since we're patting, up on, patting ourselves on the back for fluency. <laughs> and they just didn't know. Um, so the week we arrived, like randomly, but true story, the week we arrived was Africa week. Wow. <laughs> so it, literally, it looked like they'd rolled out the red carpet for us, but it wasn't so. So my school in um, Winchester had a sister school in Uganda where they, they, um, the students from Winchester like exchanged letters with the students from Uganda. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, were, they did this Africa week thing to raise to raise funds, actually. Awareness as well, but funds most importantly. And they raised a lot of money, around £17,000 actually at the time. So they, oh, it was, wow. they did well. Um, and then people would do things like they'd do a big sale and raise money for Africa Week, etc., etc. But then at the same time, people were also doing a lot of projects. So this was, I suppose, the raising awareness. Enter me, you know, the authentic, original African. <laughs> and um, I remember one of my <laughs> classmates, um, decided to switch her project from Kenya to Nigerian since a genuine Nigerian had just kind of emerged on the scene. <laughs> you know, so you know, she comes up to me and says, you know, like, you know, she was going to do Kenya and you know, um, but now she's going to do Nigeria. And I was supposed, oh wow, what an honor! Wow, like Nigeria is so honored to have you do us as a project. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so so her Kenya project was going to be safari themed, of course. <laughs> so she turns to thank you, Lion King. So she turns, right. she turns to me, and she goes, um, so do you have lions in Nigeria? Now. Actually, I do know that there actually is a West African lion. At the time, I didn't know that. And also, we definitely don't have lions in Lagos. I was like, no, we don't have lions in Nigeria. And she's like, do you have giraffes? I was like, no, we don't have giraffes. Do you have rhinoceroses? And literally, it's like Noah's Ark. She goes through a list of all the animals that she wants to put in her project. And I'm like, no, no, no. I think the only yes she got was monkeys. And so at the end of her list, she was like, well, what do you have? And I was like, wow, okay. So... Because we don't have this random list of animals, a, a city where I come, I, I forget the population of Nigeria, just Lagos alone, you know, 16 million people um, or more even the, the, every day the city is growing. And yet, you know, it can be so easily dismissed as a non-place because you couldn't find any, I don't know, rhinoceroses <laughs> to put in your, to put in your oh project. And it was little things like that. I remember once... Um, I'm going to a friend's house. And at the time in Lagos, you know, we only had one kind of Western-looking cinema, I suppose. And I remember one of the people saying, oh, um, I don't even know how this fact came up. You know, but someone else said, oh, yeah, must be a real one-horse town. And Mm -hmm. I thought Lagos. And I think when I lived in Lagos, yes, this is the thing. I felt, you know, provincialized i felt like i was living on the outskirts of things but then once i moved to to england i was like oh my gosh that place was buzzing there was so much energy like and as lagos how can anybody describe lagos as a one horse town like lagos is a field of mustangs okay like <laughs> like gosh like there are horses everywhere and so yes i mean i knew moving away from nigeria and i guess 
deeply experiencing another culture you know like just made me realize you know how much was there like lagos is such a complex vibrant teeming frustrating yes enriching enlivening like i just feel like like life is just brighter i don't know how to describe it like but once i arrive in lagos it's like red bull gives you wings (laughs) (laughs) um yeah um yeah lagos is red bull quote me we will. I feel like that should go on a T-shirt or something. It should <laughs> exactly. It should. <laughs> you know, exactly. I'm pretty sure if Red Bull has a you know Lagos branch, they need to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> but so I really loved how you wrote about Lagos such in such a vivid way, and I feel like you know I I was in school for seven years, so I do need to say that I had my head in the sand except for anything that involved like Virginia Woolf and whatever paper <laughs> I was working on at the time. But I feel like most recently that there have been so many uh, Nigerian writers coming to the forefront of the literary scene, and so when we ever whenever we have people uh, on the podcast from different areas of the world, we always ask them, hey what books would you recommend uh, that we are missing that we definitely need to be more aware of? Uh, so do you have any Nigerian writers or authors that you would highly recommend that you need to be like, hey guys over there in America, you need to read this person because you're missing out. <laughs> I have a library for you. So obviously I won't mention, <laughs> I won't mention um, Chimamanda because everybody has read Americana. Okay, mm-hmm. everybody, including <laughs> Hillary Clinton. So now like really like the everybody is really everybody now. Um, so I would say start with, um, or my first, my top recommendation would be Sefi Atta's Everything Good Will Come. Like, everywhere I go. Like, in fact, it's funny. I literally, I bought it because I lost my copy. I bought, a, I bought a copy of it on this trip. I saw it in Barnes and & Nobles and bought it. And then I lost it again. I'm so oh, annoyed. Oh, my goodness. Um, I know. Anyways, Everything Good Will Come. So it's a story of two friends um Enitor and Sherry and their friends um from childhood so the book novel follows them from childhood and um till their adulthood basically just follows them through all the changes in their lives one gets married one doesn't etc etc and basically it's like before the Neapolitan Chronicles by Elena Ferrante there was Sefi Atta and you're like, oh. in Neapolitan Chronicles, they're like a thousand pages long. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. this is just all condensed into one novel. Like, it oh, is wow. so brilliant. I've read this book like six times. And not only does she do this female friendship so well, and like all the intricacies of like, kind of very close, but also the rivalry and like, if one is prettier than the other or if like just like the, the jealousies that can exist still within very like close friendships where you will defend your friend outside but internally you have all these kind of squabbles and etc etc um it's so brilliant and then she also does lagos really well um and so the way she does lagos in everything good will come it's not a contemporary lagos it's not a lagos i know it's kind of lagos from the 70s which is a little bit before my time but <laughs> she does it so well that like I wanted to go there like it's the first time I'm like I'm from this place and I want to go to this place I'd like the way she did Lagos and I I suppose it inspired me it might anything with inspiration it's never a direct line it's not like oh Sefi did Lagos so well so now I'm going to do Lagos like often it's not a direct line Mm -hmm. but um just the way she did the city 
it's and the way just everything about that book. Everybody should read Everything Good Will Come by Sefi Atta. Okay, well, right, okay. You definitely <laughs> sold me on it. I'm like adding it to my list right now. Uh, good. Yeah. It sounds absolutely absolutely amazing. Okay. I've not finished my library. Okay, I'm Keep gonna do more. Keep going. Okay, so um Yoande Omotosho, she wrote a book called The Woman Next Door. Um, and again, it's like an unusual, the, her protagonists are unusual. And I think like Yoande is like a really like brilliant, unusual writer. She often has her first novel as well, the protagonist in Bomb Boy is unusual. So in The Woman Next Door, it's a story about two women in their 80s. I don't know when last, if ever, I read a novel where the main characters are in their 80s. I don't and it's think sort I of, ever have. I don't, I don't, exactly. I don't think I ever have. And they live in post-apartheid South Africa. One is black, one is white, and they live in a very high-end neighborhood. And they share a wall, I think. And literally, just the antagonism, they're, they're not friends. <laughs> All the antagonisms and et cetera, et cetera, that come from that. And the interesting thing is that Yewande was born in Nigeria, um, but moved to South Africa when she was a child. So she's, I think she's now South African as well. So it's it's just this interesting dual perspective that she has. So the woman next door. And last, I recommend Yemisi Ogbe. Um, she is an essayist and she wrote a food collection called, is that what you call it? Like a collection of essays about food called... Yeah long throat memoirs basically she just Ooh. looks at nigeria through the prism of food like i just like when people do really original random stuff because i'm just like i've just never thought about thinking about nigeria using the lens of jollof rice or mm. using the lens of stew but there are so many insightful things to be gained when you look at a country thinking about eggs. She has an essay about how eggs are used to check the virginity of girls. That this, 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 this has not been my experience. This is not a laughing matter. This is just weird. I don't even, I don't even know how. I don't know what the egg does. I, I, just, I don't understand. But when, literally, she just maps all Nigeria's kind of beauties and eccentricities and just, I don't understand the egg thing. But, yeah, like, she just has all these brilliant essays and, like, how, you know, the role of food in relationships between men and women and, you know, gender and food. And it's really, really good. And it's really funny. Um, that sounds amazing. It does. Yeah. If there's anything Kendra and I love more than books, it's food. So. It's true. It is <laughs> very true. marriage. <laughs> Before we let you go, um, we always like to ask authors if they want to hint at anything they're working on right now. And if you're if you don't want to jinx it or don't want to mention it, or you're not working on anything. That's totally fine. But we always love to ask. Yeah, I'll mention I'll mention in, in vagueness. Um, I did a PhD. Well, I'm still in the process. I've handed in my thesis. Um, Congratulations. So done, thank you. But I haven't done my defense, basically, where you you do an oral examination on the work you submitted. But I have spent the last four years, like, doing a lot of reading in, like, just the African past. Um, and, like, maybe for the, the past 200 years, maybe, of African history, I've spent four years looking at it. So I am definitely going to incorporate some of all this research because it cannot be wasted I think no. maybe like my next five novels, I keep t- saying I'm going to do um, 
I'm just going to become Hillary Mantel. <laughs> <laughs> so watch out, Wolf Hall, okay? And yeah. Well, that sounds exciting. We'll definitely be looking for that. Yeah. And if it's anyone <laughs> who you. understands, like, it's Autumn, whose husband is doing his PhD right now. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. So that was all the questions we had. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about your book, um, Welcome to Lagos. And we really appreciate, like I said, you coming talking to us. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a great time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So that was our interview with Chubandu, and we love talking to her. And oh my goodness, Autumn, all those book recommendations. I know. I was adding them to my TBR as we were talking to her. And I just, and all the different things that she mentioned, and I don't know where to start, quite honestly. I know Google is the place to start, but after that, it's like I have so much to read now, so much to look up, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing. Well, obviously... I mean, you've already read it, but everyone else should start with Welcome to Lagos. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And after that, I definitely want to pick up her debut, which I I just need to get my hands on. And that's our show. We would like to say thank you again to Chibundu Anuzo for talking to us about her book, Welcome to Lagos, which is out now from Catapult. You can find her on Twitter at Chibundu Anuzo and on Instagram at Chibundu.Anuzo. And we will have links to those in our show notes so you can easily find her and follow her. We will also have links to her books in our show notes as well. So be sure to check those out. And as for us, you can find Reading Women at The Reading Women on Twitter, Litzy, Instagram, Facebook. And you can find Kendra at KD Winchester and me at Autumn Privet at most of the same places. So thank you all so much for listening to the Reading Women podcast, and we will talk to you all soon. Thank you.